0: Warning, this program typically features respectful, nuanced, and well-informed commentary, strong language, obscure pop culture references, and spurious allegations. There's a quote that I saw attributed to Kevin Durant that he reportedly said, with respect to your book, and I believe in a text to you. Yeah. Um, fuck you. Yeah. Fuck your sources. Yes. And fuck your book. It's a good blurb.
1: We, we, we know of new methods of attack. The Trojan
0: horse, The fifth column. To another exciting installment of the Fifth Column podcast. This is your weekly rhetorical assault on the news cycle, the people that make it, and occasionally ourselves. I'm Camille Foster, and I'm I'm back in Brooklyn. I'm back in Brooklyn, and it actually it actually feels it feels nice. It feels nice, but it also is a little just weird and sad. Feels like a city that is declining. It's all boarded up. But we're not going to start off on a, on a bad foot, because I'm still associated with Freethink Media, and I still do various things there of great consequence and significance and importance. And I'm joined by Matt Welch, editor at Large Reason Magazine. Michael Moynihan is someplace, but he's not here right now. He's also in Brooklyn. Let's, let's... But he is in Brooklyn. He is in Brooklyn. He is in the land of the living. We are, we are all still blessed to be COVID-free, at least so far as we know. Matt, how are you holding up? I'm, I'm, you know, whatever. Like, uh, (laughs) do you
2: bring the family with you? No, I'm, I'm solo. You're solo. You need to come over to the patio for some uh, social distance, some some libation. Absolutely. No, go
0: ahead. My mother-in-law is genuinely concerned when I leave. Yeah, she's always concerned that I might bring back the COVID. You can't get it from me. Why can't I get it from you? Because I
2: haven't done anything for two fucking months
0: <laughs>
2: anything there's two kids they haven't done There's anything. so many things
0: that have to happen my getting from here to there
2: you can come to my patio open air it's wow. literally impossible unless you're sneezing down my throat again <laughs> to give me the plague if you come over here so
0: I feel like I'm getting pressured into doing something that I don't necessarily want to do, and I'm having a hard time saying no. Would you introduce the guest already? He's just sitting there. Well, we do have a guest today, a sports writer with The Athletic, author of the very exciting new book on the uh, recently extinguished Golden State Warriors dynasty, The Victory Machine. Mr. Ethan Strauss. I'm very happy to be here. I'm very happy to How be, are you? I'm, I'm so happy to be here. I'm talking
1: over my own introduction. Um, <laughs> nice. I'm, I'm excited to be here. Uh, big fan of the program. Now, in my mind, this was my chance to break out and rise above my station as a sports writer and show how smart <laughs> I am and how I'm well-rounded and I can talk politics. But I look at the list of uh, potential topics and uh, apparently I,
0: it's, it's sports. It's sports. Dude, you got a book to hawk. Come on, <laughs> we're trying to keep you safe. Honestly, if you want to live in our world, <laughs> you it. can do that. I, I'm fine with you getting political. In fact, you've you've written some very good things. You've written plenty of very good things. But one thing that I'm confident I've mentioned on the podcast in the past, but I would endorse again and suggest people go find um at the athletic which means you're going to need a subscription people so that you can actually read this is a great piece that you wrote about the golden state warriors and particularly coach steve kerr and his comments or non-comments about china which at the beginning of the nba season yes this nba season which began 22 centuries ago there was that whole controversy Um, actually just before the season began Daryl Morey of the Rockets who tweeted, stand with Hong Kong. Um, the Chinese took offense and, of course, did a great many things, including making it look like they weren't going to play any of these NBA exhibition games, which were scheduled at the time. Uh, but yeah, you had a great piece of uh, sort of putting things into context in a way that I really didn't see anyone else doing. Thank you for saying that. And the update on that situation is it costs
1: the NBA hundreds of millions of dollars. Mm, really? Yeah. Only
0: the beginning of a very bad <laughs> year for the NBA. <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. They're fairly, they're fairly money starved now, what with the season being halted. And I do wonder, I do wonder how much, what would the price be for the Houston Rockets to fire Daryl Morey to just get some of the money coming back into the spigot? Because it did start, it did start in a bad way. It did cost them a lot of money. I don't know if we Recap the situation for uh, the listeners, since it was a few months ago. But to set the scene, yes, Daryl Morey, he he did that tweet um, in support of in support of Hong Kong. Really, he was retweeting a picture, and the response was so disproportionate. Not only did the Chinese government and their business interests make the threat, they really made good on the threat. And there's been some signaling that for them to ever resume relations with the NBA, uh, he's got to go. The general manager, for those who don't know, the guy who makes trades, trades players, whatnot, and he's he's somebody who's a big deal. Like he's not just an obscure guy in the NBA. He is like the Billy Bean mm-hmm. Moneyball guy. Um, he's got to go for the relationship to resume, um, and that could put the NBA in a tricky position going forward because you have a lot of you've got a lot of owners who've lost a lot of money. They're desperate, and I think if China ever mm-hmm. wanted to resume the relationship. They would jump at the chance, but now, now it's a situation where a lot of the uh, a lot of the American sports fans didn't love China's position on it, didn't love the idea, and hate China far more now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's one thing when when China's fucking with Daryl Moore, <laughs> It's another thing when maybe you blame them for your grandmother dying. It's like a different thing. Yeah. It's a different thing. So that could be a hard choice on the horizon.
0: Now you said resume the relationship. What is the status of the NBA's relationship with China now? Because before there was a massive deal there with respect to television rights and all kinds of other stuff. What's the status of the relationship between the Chinese, uh, well, between China and the NBA? Well, China's effectively put it on hold. Um, and the NBA
1: has really just had their hands out for a while, waiting, hoping they change their minds. And I think has been sucking up to them in many ways. And maybe you would think that at the NBA All-Star Game, for instance, in February, when they, they had a bunch of Wuhan strong, hashtag Wuhan strong on the jumbotron and whatnot. And Adam Silver, the commissioner of the NBA, is going on and on about China in his uh, yearly All-Star Game press conference and saying, how do we help? We just want to help. Like when there's an earthquake in Haiti, as though, as though the nation of China needs the NBA to really help it, this, this, you know, economic Goliath, you know, it's absurd. But it just seems like the NBA wants to get back to the way things were. They want to get back to the way things were, where they got mm-hmm. an easy check, where they had this emergent market, where it all worked out quite nicely, because the way the timing goes, it's like a breakfast program in China, a little bit like how soccer is here. And you have potentially more fans over there um, to grow that, that uh, what is it, the embedded growth principle that you're trying to just grow all the time? That's where the opportunity is. And it really freaks the owners out and it freaks a lot of the people. There, there are a lot of teams that have been recently bought by people under the assumption that this thing would just keep growing and growing and growing. And if there's no growth in China, that's not the case. And your asset is not worth nearly what you paid for it. So it is a very tricky situation for the NBA. But I would argue it's one you know it's one they deserve they deserve it they got greedy they took their eye off the ball state side uh, popularity of the NBA in the United States has been declining as they've been out trying to pump it up elsewhere and now they're a little bit stuck really yeah huh. uh, the radians have precipitously declined of late um, that became a big story this season this year but there was a somewhat of a flatness you know we're going to probably talk about the last dance the michael jordan documentary but i mean that was the apogee Mm -hmm. michael jordan game six 1998 in utah uh is the most watched nba game ever and the you know the league is not nearly as popular and you could say yeah well uh there are so many more channels now and there are so many more things to do and that's true but if you look at the nfl's ratings they've only gained they've only gained like their super bowl is watched by I don't know, maybe 20 million more people as it was in 1998, whereas the NBA has lost yeah, about 10 million viewers from just an absolute peak finals and what, what it would be. It, it's funny because it runs contra this favored narrative. There's something weird about the NBA where the people in my business almost act as boosters and we're always kind of pumping it up and we're saying it's so relevant and NBA Twitter and everybody's talking about it on social media. And meanwhile, you know, in terms of just the real tangible metrics, you're not seeing that popularity in the United States. And you have to wonder if some of that is because the NBA has been so focused abroad and not focused on growing the game at home.
2: Well, just to jump in, since I'm talking to someone, A, who just dropped a book about the Golden State Warriors, and B, who hates Steph Curry with every (laughs) ounce of his desiccated soul and, (laughs) and is... Pattern, his life, except for the China bits uh, around LeBron uh, James here. So like uh, those are the two dominant entities in the sport over the last half decade, you know, probably a little bit longer. Somehow this wasn't compelling because usually the classic interpretation of the NBA is, as they said in the last episode of The Last Dance or one of the last ones from last weekend, you know, uh, Magic and Bird saved the game and then Jordan like sent it into the stratosphere, made it this international thing. Um, And so after all of this kind of process, what did the Warriors and LeBron do? It would you would think that that's a pretty compelling uh, you know, storyline there. You have, you have hero ball who like goes to the finals, no matter what his team is uh, against this incredibly, I think compelling, interestingly playing group of people that, that uh, Camille hates, uh, but that, uh. but like who play objectively beautiful basketball on their best days um but yet that w- wasn't compelling or is it more that it's just a long arc of decline that they didn't really change the trajectory yeah, it's, of?
1: it's more the long arc because people were more compelled relatively by those storylines and by those teams versus the other teams it's more that you've got a long arc of decline and you're not seeing let's say in atlanta the love for the Hawks being nearly what it was uh, in the 1990s and for for all of the other teams. and then there's been this recent I don't hmm. know what else to call it, I guess to sound like doubt it like decadence that set in <laughs> where it's almost got it's almost got a little too crazy where it's become it's become very obvious that the players don't give a shit about their team. I mean, that was always <laughs> kind of true to a certain extent but now we're kind of now we're seeing it. And there have been economic forces that have made it all Mm. the more obvious. The owners, for instance, always wanted shorter contracts. They didn't want to sign a guy to a really long contract and be locked Mm -hmm. into that. And so there are liberty versus security trade-offs. So they changed the collective bargaining agreement to make the contract shorter, not anticipating that what would happen is that suddenly Mm -hmm. the superstars would have immense leverage over them. And that they would change teams uh, in rapid succession. Uh, And so you don't have those theoretically organic relationships. You know, you don't have the noble lie that we need for the sport to be very popular, that these guys just love it in this city and they're going to play their whole career or the vast majority of their career here. Suddenly you've got situations like Kawhi Leonard winning the championship with the Raptors, a team that he had kind of, gotten to because he demanded a trade from the spurs and then he turns around and signs with the los angeles clippers and we don't really think he gives too much of a shit about his teammates <laughs> they don't care about him uh, paul george a superstar is on whatever team he's on by now lebron james went to los angeles uh, i don't think anybody thinks it's because of some love for la but it's to. Uh, chase his film career. All of these in isolation are fine, but I think it reaches a critical mass where it just seems very mercenary and it seems to be having a drag on the popularity and perhaps the China situation hurt them as well. Mm-hmm. That didn't look great either. where LeBron James is scolding Daryl Morey and nobody, nobody, nobody dares criticize China, dares criticize Xi Jinping for this mm-hmm. insane punishment of the NBA. Uh, whereas they see fit to have lectures, some, some of which might be the right lectures, the correct lectures on American politics. All of this is just forming a kind of gestalt that seems to be turning viewers off.
0: You use the word mercenary. Yeah. The word corporate was floating around in my head. And it is certainly the case that when I watch The Last Dance, which we'll, we'll talk about, maybe we'll just organically get there. And when I think about the NBA today, And the way teams are made and that that bizarre circumstance where Kawhi leaves a team that he just won a championship for to go play in L.A. and sort of constitute a new team where he's playing with different friends, Um, it, it, it definitely feels fundamentally different. The contempt that like Michael mm. Jordan has for Isaiah Thomas, <laughs> the, the way he derisively laughs at the glove, Gary Payton, when he's musing about how he thought he might be getting into Jordan's head. He thought he might have been wearing him down. And Jordan just ice cold says, the glove, the <laughs> glove. I didn't have any problem with the glove. There's no sense that there are those hatreds now. The cruelest thing that he does is like, Clyde Drexler, nah.
2: <laughs> that was it like one of the 25 best players one of the five best players at that position probably ever and it's just like nah and he was actually right like <laughs> compared to Jordan nah. but yeah but like to, to Camille's point like the absolute visceral burning hatred is also part of sports and competition right and I don't know who has it for anybody right now in the NBA
0: well there are resentments there's some beefs but the beefs even seem to be like corporate the tension between mm. LeBron and Steph sort of seems like a corporate beef. I mean, are they competing yeah. for titles and that's the problem? Or, you know, it's kind of my turn and you're fucking up my jersey sales. It feels like it's more the <laughs> latter than the former.
1: Well, I'm sure the resentment between LeBron and Steph extends beyond the mere corporate. But yes, it is rooted in that, specifically sneakers. I mean, that was huge. Steph, for a moment, was on the rise with Under Armour. Mm-hmm. And he was i mean i think there was some call i can't remember it was morgan stanley perhaps saying that he could be worth 14 billion dollars to under armor as a sneaker salesman (laughs) when he was on his rise in 2015 to 2016 and the warriors were on their way to 73 wins because that's how crazy the sneaker business is Mm -hmm. it's it's young men just doing a physical act that can swing billions of dollars just billions and billions of dollars build companies you could make the argument that michael jordan was as influential if not more so to making nike what it is than steve jobs was to making apple what it is absolutely i mean that's that's the game yeah that's 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 the game that's what it is and steph was on that trajectory uh lebron the heir apparent to jordan but never coming close to his status as a sneaker salesman, and then suddenly there was this, there was this encroachment, and it was something that they know about, they obsess about, and ultimately Steph, you know, losing his shoes, getting mocked, he put put out some shoes that looked corny, you know, the whole, Steph's whole thing came asunder. You know, buy my book, buy my book, buy my book, whatever it's in there, but um, that stuff is what they think about. I mean, th- who's your employer is a legitimate question. Who is the real employer of the NBA? player i mean lebron is on what his fourth team mm. he, he's been with team nike since he was a teenager and he signed a lifetime deal and they promised to pay him way more after he retires you know michael jordan makes over 100 million dollars every year from nike still yes yeah, yeah. oh yes yeah. that is yeah. more
0: Fuck. jordan's are still king is isn't it fair to say that jordan is still this many years removed from his third retirement the most prominent individual in the basketball universe. Uh, far the cultural yeah. impact, the conversation almost always finds its way back to Jordan. You need like a Godwin's law for that. Like how long a basketball conversation could go on before yeah, it like yeah. arrives back at Michael Jordan? Is, can that be Camille's law? <laughs> Until
2: two months ago, it could it could last a few minutes, <laughs> but no more. I mean, I talk a little bit, uh, Ethan, if if you will, uh, about like the kind of cultural impact or just like or even your take as someone who's watching this, who knows Steve Kerr obviously pretty well and and the kind of coaching tree that comes out of uh, uh, Phil Jackson. what's your impressions as this phenomena of the last dance, which I have loved, I've watched it, I have my beefs with, which I'm sure we'll get to, but like what that, what does that look like from your perspective? So it is Michael Jordan
1: propaganda. Mm-hmm. I mean that's number one. He's a producer of it, but guess what? I still want to see what Michael Jordan would curate as his own propaganda. I want to see what a fifty-seven-year-old Michael Jordan wants to show us of his of his life and times. Him drinking this, mostly- okay. okay. yes, yeah, his in, in a house that's not even his house, but is meant to look like his house. Are you shitting me? Um, I'm not chitin, oh, or at least God. I was told that. That's great. It could be, could be <laughs> fake news. I don't know, but I still want to see it because he's a sweet, generous. He's a sweet, generous character mm-hmm. in American Life, and you know, Ken Burns probably has a point. But this is not a standard dude. This is like the last great American celebrity in a way, where there is. I mean, I don't know of somebody who's been as popular and has this mythos and mystique and there is a narrative arc and there's tragedy and there's pain and there's triumph. We haven't had an athlete since then who has really gotten there. And so hell yeah, I'm sort of Mm -hmm. watching this and the clip that's been going around where he says winning has a price and he is explaining why he was so cruel and vicious to his teammates. When people see this, uh, they're going to say, well,
2: he wasn't really a nice guy. He may have been a tyrant. Oh, well, that's you. Because you never won anything. I wanted to win, but I wanted them to win and be a part of that
1: as well. And I don't even really buy the rationalization, but it is poetic to watch it. It's poetic <laughs> to watch it? him Why say this. <laughs> hmm. I can get into that. I, I okay. I'll simply put. I think he did it because he could. I don't think he did it to pull those guys along. I don't think he did it for those teams. Well, he he needed them.
0: It was good towards his own end. Yeah, I think but he, he did it win for the game
1: by himself. I think he did it for him. I think that that cruelty and viciousness was part and parcel of what made him great. But this uh, retroactive justification. So to explain to people who haven't seen it, he, he explains winning has a price and leadership has a price. He wanted to win, but he also wanted these guys to win. And you see this montage yeah. with this wonderful music, just all the fucking winning, <laughs> all the champagne showers, all the dancing. And this montage has all these guys who don't like Michael Jordan. I mean, that's what's so poetic. <laughs> these guys don't like him or didn't like him.
2: In the case of Jerry
1: Krause, who was- yeah,
0: yeah. Horace Grant doesn't like Michael Jordan. I think no. we're we're safe. Yeah, yeah. But Horace and, Grant and j- wants to be liked by Michael Jordan. I don't get the sense that Horace Grant hates sure. him. I certainly don't get the sense that that Pippin hates him, or even Steve. It Kerr might not hates be. <laughs> <laughs> I don't get um, that
1: sense. <laughs> uh, look, I, I don't. I wouldn't say. I wouldn't say. I wouldn't say hate, but I also wouldn't say like, and I wouldn't say friends with. And so there's something incredible about seeing that imagery and seeing the music and seeing. I mean, having been around a team winning their first championship, it's like a wedding times a hundred, and it's so cathartic and it's mm-hmm. so joyful, and you're just seeing these beautiful images at the height of triumph and Michael Jordan has given these people this. He is given these people this and he's reflecting Mm. on it and they don't like him. And then suddenly he's getting choked up and crying and saying break because he can't do it anymore.
2: I don't have to do this. I'm only doing it because
1: it is who I am. That's how I played the game. That was my mentality. If you
0: don't want to play that way, don't play that way. Break.
1: And maybe if it was Ken Burns, uh, there would have been a follow-up of why the fuck you're, why, why are you crying? Like, I don't know why he's crying in this case. Is it because you're tapping into the well of emotion? Is it because you have regrets about how you've treated people? But we never know. And so it just lingers as a mystery. And I would
0: like to know, but you know what? It's a damn good product regardless. I am still absorbed into it. You use the word propaganda and I want I to defend this for a moment. Like, one, all filmmaking is propaganda. Narrative film and documentary film, it's all propaganda. Yeah. Too simple, but go on. Of course there are degrees, but it is for some purpose and to some end. But this, this documentary, The Last Dance, it seems like Jordan approved, but it doesn't seem false. It is definitely the story he wants to tell about himself, but I don't ever get the sense that it's a script that he's reading from, it feels very authentic. If it, and if it isn't, then he's just a fantastic actor. Mm. I get the sense that he is perhaps approving cuts, but the emotional response, you know, I want to win. I'm willing to do whatever it takes to win. And I'm going to drag these assholes along with me because a team has five people on the court at once and I can't be in all the positions. If I could, I would is the sense that I got. So that's the first thing. The second thing, though, is about that particular moment in the film. It it struck me that that something is kind of wrong with him. Yes. To be that singularly focused on winning is... I mean, I get it, but it's also... It's Conan, right? Like, what is best in life? To crush your enemies, see them Mm. driven before you, to hear the lamentations (laughs) of their women. Like, that is... What he's saying to see the bad boys slink was off obvious the court. That he wanted to destroy people. He wanted to stomp a mud hole in your chest. And I don't know that it's it's more important to him to to heave the trophy over his head than to not be the person who is completely vanquished and vanquished in a way that like I'm still talking about it every time I see you and I'm still thinking about the way that I owned your ass, right? Like he's pissed off at Isaiah for walking off the court, not because that's not sportsman. Like I didn't have the opportunity to truly enjoy my domination of you. Like you escaped some of the embarrassment that you deserve. Well,
1: and he's famously unhappy. I don't know if he's still unhappy to be clear, but when Wright Thompson wrote about him, I think in maybe 2013, uh, Michael Jordan at 50, it's a great article. He's, he's not a happy man. This has not been a road to balance and a lot of it is because he cannot reclaim the triumphs Hmm. of the old days that he experienced the height of a drug that he there's nobody can nobody can make it for him it doesn't exist he Hmm. can't get there and so he's quite haunted by it and some of the balance that he achieved in life i think came through his father who was tragically killed and so he just wallows he watches old westerns that's what he does in his house just like a lot of a lot of old Westerns, and maybe recently since that article, he has has found some sort of equanimity. Uh, But yeah, a lot of great people are lopsided. That's what enables them to achieve greatness. Not all of them, to be clear, but Jordan is certainly cut out of the mold of, uh, he's somebody who would watch Whiplash and think that this was a good lesson yeah. about life to learn.
2: Yeah. That to me is one of the most poignant things about watching it. Now I was uh, out of the country during their entire mm. run with the exception of 98. Um, but you know, you would, if you're dipping back in, you would, you, you caught some of it, but uh, I re so I Remember 98 uh, in particular. And like, it was obvious, I think, at the time that the gap between Space Jam, Michael Jordan, you know, I want to be like Mike, the corporate pitchman and the actual competitive monster on the court that, that they had almost nothing in common. Like it was obvious <laughs> then. Yeah. And it's and uh, it's 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 kind of poignant to see him struggle through. Almost uh, admitting, and and Camille, to your point about uh, propaganda and wh- whatever, and no false notes. Um, I would say that like every time that there is sort of like a conflicted moment, it's that he just cared too much about winning, and like so, yeah. some of it's, or, 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 or he was in or or, or, or
1: or he had a baseball body. That's why the magic kicked his ass. It was that baseball body. It was Tim Grover forcing him. To uh to pack on t- pack on Tony Gwynn's belly <laughs> under the jersey and therefore. No, it's the I mean, average it's it's average 32 yeah, yeah. <laughs> he averaged 32 points a game uh the series before against the Hornets uh before playing the Magic. But you know, that's what the baseball the body catches that's, up to That's you.
2: poignant is that like it's almost as if he thinks, and he's struggling with this, that um that it's a huge r- reveal to the American public that you know what. Maybe he was just a super hyper competitive dickhead. And in addition to being like the biggest, uh, uh, you know, greatest physical graceful athlete at the time, it's like, dude, we all knew always. We, we know,
1: and we, <laughs> and we <laughs> love, love it. Of yeah. course, we love it. We love you for it. It's it's in American Hustle where Jennifer Lawrence is talking about how every perfume has a top coat with something rotten uh, <laughs> among the beautiful citrusy notes. We we all know it. We know it's there, and we like it. It feels authentic. We're drawn to it. We are unhealthy, perhaps, in our worship of it. And whatever it is, whatever he was, there's just an alchemy of cool that has not been replicated that Mm -hmm. LeBron doesn't Mm -hmm. have. Somebody could present you with the basketball reference stats and make the argument that LeBron's the greatest player and greater than Jordan. It would be a pretty good argument. But, I mean, I could say whatever I want to say about this documentary. I could slight how maybe it's propaganda, maybe they should have included this or that, but just nothing stacks up to seeing original footage of that guy in the locker room in his jersey with a cigar that he's chomping languidly swinging a baseball bat looking like a picture of cool that we have not seen since uh cigarette billboards <laughs> decades ago i mean there's just that, that's what it and is also, that's a lot of the documentary to be clear
2: crushing miller lights which is like uh <laughs> Moynihan's beer that's how ghetto he was going yeah. there uh,
1: for that no. uh, the Warriors the Warriors loved Coors lights and Medellas I mean I don't know about that choice yeah that was something with the Warriors the first uh year of the Kevin Durant run we would all get in the locker room after the game and KD would always chug an entire Coors light which I guess for him at that size it's like uh I don't know a shot of Miller light for uh for for us and then he would
2: uh, he would let out a belch and then he would do the interview. So, you know,
1: the, the, the good old days are
0: still here is what they
2: I want to get to Ke- Kevin Durant and you, uh, but I want to to follow up on one one aspect of this, uh, which is that, and I love the documentary too with, you know, the same kind of caveats, Ethan, that you bring to it. But it, here's my perhaps biggest beef is that it, I, this was sold. This was when I first read about it either in New York Times or ESPN. Um, it's like, hey, this camera crew Had unprecedented access to the team from like the first day of practice in the 97 98 season. Wow, the historical season, super interesting, great stuff. What do we get? (laughs) You know, the best thing that we've gotten so far that I have seen in this is like the uh, the uh, 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 Jordan, like playing some stupid ass gambling sick game (laughs) of flipping a quarter (laughs) against the wall with the security help, which is just like bananas. Um, But like a lot of the the actual footage that you see is the pregame (laughs) break break. Like, how many times do we have to see that? It's not interesting. So it says to me, Camille, that like he used that veto power, because if you had cameras around for a 100 games, if you count the preseason games and like we've seen the best that you got out of there, either these are the most boring people I've ever seen in my life uh, or we haven't seen it. And uh, uh, Ethan and I were talking, Camille, even before you joined on the call. Of one of the great basketball books uh, ever uh, written, David Halberstam's The Breaks the Game, which chronicles, I believe, the 1977 78 Portland Trail Blazers, the season after they won their <laughs> championship in the Bill Walton era. Um, and he had the craziest access you've ever, you just, it's impossible to imagine now. Ethan is someone who's just written a book about a team and a franchise that you know well, but also, you know, the modern rules of access and kind of stiff arming of, you know, making sure that you don't get the good stuff. What is your perspective on the use of what, of that, what that camera crew got in 97, 98 compared to what could have been shown?
1: Well, it doesn't surprise me that there's no trove of some unexpected shocker because yeah, there're camera crews following him around but not during the halftime speech, not during like the actual the actual stuff. They didn't they didn't have that back then. I mean, David Stern fought tooth and nail to get some cameras in the locker room. It was you know, it was a big, it was a big thing. And in the aughts, I think in the early aughts, the, uh, the, the coach, Scott Skiles, I'm trying to remember who Scott Skiles was. It might've been the bucks. It might've been the magic. David Stern actually humiliated Scott Skiles in front of, uh, in front of the other coaches. It was at the coaches meeting, the annual coaches meeting in Chicago. Um, and this is a bit of a detour, but you know, this story is a good story. So fuck it. Um. So uh, yeah. So Stern was trying to get cameras in the locker room in those parts that you're not supposed to see uh, to show people on broadcast television a halftime speech of the coaches and Scott Skiles kind of a newish coach, you know, not a lot of not a lot of gravitas for old Scott Skiles. This wasn't Phil Jackson raises his hand and he goes, "Uh, no offense, David, but you know, the locker room, it's kind of, uh, it's kind of like my, uh, it's like our sacred space, you know, it's like my sacred space. And uh David Stern, the NBA commissioner, goes and I'm paraphrasing here. Uh, like, oh, okay, okay. Yeah. So on the one hand, uh we've got uh Billions of dollars from our broadcast partners, uh-huh, one hand. And on the other hand, we've got, uh, Scott fucking, <laughs> shut the fuck up, sit <laughs> the fuck down. I don't want to hear another fucking <laughs> word out of you. You see <laughs> next time
2: before you speak.
1: Basically took his soul. I'm sorry, I think my son's over he's there. Two. Oh, he's care. two.
2: He's
1: uh, <laughs> two, he's good, learning. It's, he's learning. You know, learning. it's a developmental breakthrough if you start speaking that way. Um, <laughs> uh, so... I mean, that's all to say, oh I mean, gosh. that was in the aughts, that was afterwards. I think that a lot of those cameras, they're in the locker room and the rest of the media is in the locker room. And, you know, when mm-hmm. I watch this documentary, when I see those scenes, it feels like I'm at work and a lot of work is not fun. A lot of work is boring. A lot of work is milling about in these crowded spaces where the players know that they're being watched. And I mean, there, there, are, there are incredible things that happen, but they usually happen out of frame. People know when there's right. a camera on them and it usually influences how they act. There's a Heisenberg's uncertainty principle. Yeah. happening.
0: I, I, I want to say though, before we, before we move away from, from Jordan and talk about some of the other things and, and there are, there's a lot going on. I mean, yesterday I saw some stories about the uh, possibility of the season resuming. And this is something that is of great interest to me. So I want whatever scuttlebutt you're able to offer on that, Ethan. And um, also want to talk about your book. Uh, but Jordan, we were talking a little bit about just sort of the uniqueness of him as an individual, the way he looms large in the sport. And as, as we were talking, I I keep thinking about like the other great players that have, have subsequently come onto the scene, like the Kobe Bryants and the LeBron James is obviously, but, but folks beyond that as well, who've had big personalities like a Kevin Garnett or something like that, like a lot of astonishing talents, but there's a sense in which all of them measure themselves against Jordan and the best of them do their very best. in, in especially with Kobe Bryant to replicate like the stuff that he did to repurpose it, to remix it. Um, they, they wear his number. Um, they have at different instances worn his shoes. And there's a sense in which Jordan is just so, so much uh, in original and, in most respects doesn't seem to be doing it the way someone else did he seems to be like genuinely breaking new ground like the the combination of having a league that becomes very corporate very obviously corporate and loses a lot of the the trappings of honest, sincere hatreds and love affairs with the city and all that other stuff and camaraderie between the the teammates. To lose all of that and to also have this essential like like recursive adventure where you know that it's going to come back around to Jordan and everyone is just trying to reach that again. But I wonder what you think about that analysis. And I wonder what you think is required for the league to get its mojo back well he's imprisoned by his past
1: you know he talked about it with uh, rick Talander, uh this chicago uh, great chicago journalist and he said that he thought it would end one day you know it ends for everybody he just assumed it would end that the fame would stop that he could go outside again but no he has built this thing that he is now captive to and In a way, uh, just in business, you know, we said earlier that Jordan, he makes over a hundred million dollars every year off his shoes, but people aren't buying the new shoes. The the Jordan shoes people buy, it's the original 14 models that he wore as a Chicago Bull. He can sell that apparently until the day he dies, repurposed, a new spin put on it, a new colorway. I I don't even want new colors. Nobody really wants (laughs) the
0: same ones over and over again.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. class the classics you know it made such an impression and to throw another perhaps far-flung theory that would be difficult to prove but i would like to see uh, a statistically inclined person delve into it i believe that we better remember the sports heroes who came about at a time when their nation was Mm. doing better economically Mm. principally and so you know michael jordan the height of American empire, at least post, uh, post 1950s, perhaps 1990s, a great time rising economic fortunes. It's, it's a nice little bit of nostalgia for a lot of people versus when you think back, when you think back to the great baseball players, uh, you know, 1920s Yankees, people love not so much in the great depression uh, are the baseball players. So loved and remembered post-World War II, you know, the Mickey Mantle, all that all those guys, those baseball players are loved. I mean, I know Welch probably has a backlog and is gonna go like, well, actually in the <laughs> 1970s, there was this guy that perhaps I'm like, that might be cool. Know. Be cool. <laughs> you know, less so less so in times of decline. And so I wonder if that's part of this as well. That Jordan came about at a time when America was feeling itself and feeling better about itself. And that's one of the reasons. In addition to just the alchemy of cool and accomplishment that we just can't get away from him, and he can't get away from him, apparently.
2: There was actually, I think, I'm pretty sure, a Free Beacon uh, uh, article that... Argued that exact point uh, recently from the usual kind of free.
1: Oh God damn! You know? it. I mean, it's so a pretty a plagiarist? good. It's a pretty good.
2: I'm a plagiarist and, and oh. a neocon. So congratulations. <laughs> oh, I, I think God that, I, and I didn't read it obviously, but uh, uh, I think that the the way that that rings probably truest is with the Dream Team. I think that colors that has to color the way that the yeah. Dream Team felt because it's 1992. I mean, the Soviet Union collapsed in 1991. It wasn't 89. It like took almost up until that moment. And uh, and you, then you have just like, I mean, what a, a an end zone dance that is. Like, yeah, we were showing you, off to the world. You want to we see our off. basketball players instead of this yeah. like rinky-dink, like 1972 Doug Collins shit? Well, fuck <laughs> you. You're going to see some basketball yeah. thrown at you right yes. now. And everyone's going to love and you for
1: it. And you contrast that with how recently... At the NBA finals, Adam Silver, the current NBA commissioner, was lamenting how he wants there to be a a superstar from China in the NBA, and he's looking for ways to get the Chinese national team to do better in the Olympics, and he's trying to help facilitate that. Um, That is quite a contrast in how the American public is relating to basketball.
0: (laughs) That's quite quite a contrast. I, I think your theory is interesting. I don't know if I buy it. But I do think that it's interesting the way all of our politics and our social upsets like keep invading sports these days, not as though there there have not been various epochs in which there has been politics in sports, et cetera, et cetera. But it's different. It's different now with like the NBA being so woke on everything except turning Hong Kong into a police state <laughs> the nba is affirmatively woke and you know where they stand on all of these like justice issues and it 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 is exhausting and i don't think it's just exhausting because i often find myself not necessarily on the opposite side of things but at least with a perspective that's a little more thoughtful and nuanced than we're not even allowed to leave our houses anymore without being hunted down and murdered which is what LeBron James uh, said in response to the, the recent shooting in Atlanta, which strikes me as hyperbolic, maybe a little hysterical, just a little, only a little. Yeah,
1: it seems like the NBA, to make a, an analog, maybe it's far fetched, it almost tracks with the Democratic Party. Like the NBA and the Democratic Party have a lot of parallels, it seems, where um, in the aforementioned 1990s and 1980s, uh, there was a tremendous angst and worry. About freaking out the squares, freaking out white normies, uh, maybe quasi-racist, or some would argue racist white normies. So uh, the NBA, it's got it's got to prove that it has appeal there, and the players, they need to. Uh, there needs to be a dress code, and there needs to be draconian punishments for fighting. And there was just a tremendous. Concern about that, similar to the Democratic Party saying, oh, I don't know, like John Kerry's got to slap on some flannel and go kill some ducks, you know, (laughs) like that that, that was the that was the focus. And then time moves forward and a certain demographic triumphalism Mm. sets in a certain sense that the future belongs to us. And we don't even have to worry about those people because the trends are in our favor. Our fans are younger. Our fans are more diverse. We don't have to worry about turning those people off at all. And you can see it. And then also just the more global perspective as well, right? The more global perspective, maybe looking far afield. And not not looking into red state America, not really worrying if you're pissing off red state America or thinking at some level that those people are despicable. So fuck them. They deserve it. So we don't even need to Hmm. communicate with you. And at a certain point, maybe on some of these issues, they're right or they're correct. But the hypocrisy the hypocrisy does rankle people, and people do start to notice. They do start to notice that you do take the stand on the bathroom bill in North Carolina, whatever the mm-hmm. merits of that stand, where the NBA would not play the all-star game in Charlotte until there was some change made to that particular bill. I don't claim to know everything <laughs> about that bill. State legislation, somewhat confusing to me, but um, you know they they take that stand. And they get a lot of plaudits. I mean, that's the other thing for making the analog between the Democratic Party and the, and the NBA is there's a lot of social media feedback mm. loop happening right now. So there are a lot of plaudits. There's a lot of, uh, you know, hooray that you did this. And then the hypocrisy of that is all revealed later on. It sets them up and people go, oh, OK, I get it. You're all too happy to stick your finger in the eye of Red State Bubba and, and and Preen and Peacock when you do that. But you're not going to say anything about Xi Jinping. You're not going to say anything about China on the most clear moral transgressions. And that pisses people off. And I get it. I don't blame them. It's it's a turnoff. And again, I think it would be, it would be more pal- palatable. I'm not saying that players shouldn't express themselves on things they believe in at all. Um, I think that's fine. But there's just something... A little too high handed about the constant lectures uh, combined with the
2: obvious deafening silence. I think it'd be an interesting thing to look at the comparative um, interest in politics by the respective American sports or lack thereof, like baseball, which is a sport that I follow the, the closest Um you ain't got any of that shit. <laughs> you just don't. And and I and to be clear, I mean, I wrote a, a piece for Reason uh, a good fifteen years ago now or so, but about uh, with the headline uh, "Locker Room Liberty," which talked about how a lot of. Political or just transgressive behavior, Joe Namath wearing pantyhose and and just being a weirdo uh, in the 70s was uh, tied into free agency and actually uh, athletes having. And Bill Walton talking about the uh, David Halberstam's book, Bill Walton as a college student, even having enough clout to say, hey, John Wooden, the squarest coach, I'm going to smoke mm. fucking pot Every day, all day long, because yeah. I need to. Because I'm seven yeah. foot tall and I'm a hippie, and I got this. I, this is how I got to decompress. And you know, John wouldn't say. All right, man. Okay, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> just get your twenty-two rebounds a game. Just,
1: just, just don't, just don't tell anybody how much we pay you under the table, and we're good. right. Sorry, um, J- job famously paying
2: players. So I, yeah. I enjoy, I enjoy, uh especially in the seventies. And it, like it, the, the answer to like what, what is the era that matters the most? It's the era that you grew up in. Um. So the seventies for is like pristine,ly perfect in all ways, except for actual athleticism. With the exception of Dr. J, um, the seventies is pretty awful. But uh, no one li- lifted weights back then. Uh, But like uh, uh, baseball, there's none of this because like uh, the people who play baseball in America until pretty recently in the pipeline have been kind of red asses. Uh, you know the Darren Erstad's of the world. Um, you know football players, uh, who want to chew tobacco and spit it in your face. Um, you're not going to get a lot of of woke lectures from this crowd necessarily. Uh, and then there's a lot of people from uh, uh southern and central America and increasingly Asian, but it's Just a different cultural slice uh, of it. And like you know, NHL is super different. Uh, the the even the NFL compared to the NBA is pretty different you know, from the cultural background of of uh, people. It's uh, it's Fascinating uh, to look
1: at. Yeah. Well, the National Journal did a survey on uh, viewing habits or the political political affiliations of people who are fans of the major sports. And, yeah, NBA fans uh, trend Democrat heavily. You're probably a Democrat if you identify as an NBA fan, and that's just not – true for some of the other major sports baseball is more in the middle maybe with a slight right lean uh same with nfl same with college football obviously with more of a right lean and you know oddly enough college basketball a bit of a right word lean and so i think a lot of what's happening is that the players are speaking to the audience and speaking to the social media feedback loop because you know an aspect of when we talk about the political lectures maybe on some racial issues, it's it's obviously deeply felt. But on some of these other issues, if you're talking, let's say, in terms of uh, the, the bathroom law, I mean, like, do you think when you go in the NBA locker room and ask around about trans rights, that's, <laughs> on, that's on like the forefront? Like, I've been in NBA locker rooms, like there's been a lot of homophobia uh, relative to others. I mean, I think Charles Barkley, the paraphrase, has some quote about, you know, the NBA locker room, it's sexist, it's racist, it's homophobic. And I miss (laughs) it. Um, That's the Charles Barkley quote. He's so funny. You know, this is a hyper-masculine workspace uh, that's really built on a lot of Darwinian cruelty where these guys are really... Just trained to kill what's ever in front of them, and it informs a certain culture. I'm not defending it. I'm not saying that it's uh, that it's right. It's just that it it is, and it's difficult to completely ally yourselves to use a term with certain social movements that are out of step with that are out of step with that culture that in many ways is conservative culture, even if most of the players are voting Democrat.
2: Um, I would like to transition to your book just a, a, at least a little bit uh, because my, one of my impressions, and it's probably a misimpression of the golden state warriors um, over the past year. So Steve Kerr, who's a very thoughtful and interesting coach and Steph Curry, who Camille likes a lot um, for, for his masculinity. Uh, uh, But the way that these guys talk about stuff, with the exception of China, we're going to have to, like, put that in a different (laughs) category. Mm. Um, But, like, it's kind of similar to Greg Popovich, but the coach of the San Antonio Spurs, but less gruff, less military bearing. Like, these guys, like, strike you as thoughtful, like, the the Mm. way that they talk about things, but also the the way that they play and approach the sport – that has at least some resonance back to the Bulls, or at least the Phil Jackson kind of approach towards the Bulls, maybe not so much Michael Jordan's, you know, gambling yeah. sick uh, head. Um, but, like, there's there seems to be something sort of, like, pretty... And and a little bit intellectualized, and uh, and I mean, they 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 seem to be the opposite of you know, the bad boys Detroit the Pistons of the late '80s. As someone who's in the middle of it, who just wrote a book about that, tell me why I'm wrong, or or how this informs you're, where they're at.
1: You're not you're not wrong, and the Popovich comparison is funny because in many ways he's Steve Kerr's mentor from oh, really? when he played for the Spurs. Is he and- just to, to
2: interject. In baseball, we talk a lot about uh, uh, managerial trees or coaching trees. Yeah. Does Steve Kerr belong to Popovich or Phil Jackson? Yes, I, I would put him in the Popovich tree
1: more so. And he has a better uh, relationship with Popovich, and they are they are close friends. And I remember uh, during a playoff series, he he said in a press conference that uh, he was having Steph Curry set more back screens, and then afterwards, uh, he told me Kerr. Kerr told me that I got a text from Popovich who was giving me shit and lighting into me because you're not supposed to reveal that. You're not <laughs> supposed to say that. And But that's Popovich, and this is in Kerr's telling, and I think it's referred to in the book. That's Popovich. He comes from a military background. I'm the child of professors. So with Kerr, there's this want this to kind of share um, and with Popovich, it's all close to the vest. And so that is that is a difference between the two of them. But Kerr certainly um has a philosophy of playing with Joy. And there is a competitive streak to him. But he he found the San Antonio Spurs more humane model in the idea that one can win without being miserable to be far more appealing. <laughs> than, let's say, the Michael Jordan model. Now, where do the Warriors get that from? Because you need some of that. I think they get it from the owner. I think they get it from uh, (laughs) Joe Lacob, owner of the Golden State Warriors, venture capitalist, a caricature of a man. Uh, I, I call him Office Park Daniel Plainview. Just somebody who is just just constant energy, win, 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 kill, 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 no pretense of empathy at all, has named his dogs after Ayn Rand Um, I think that, that, informs, that informs some of the push for the Warriors to be dominating in a way um, while they also try to be empathetic and uh, caring and sharing.
0: There's a quote that I saw attributed to Kevin Durant. That he reportedly said with respect to your book, and I believe in a text to you. Yeah. Um. Fuck you. Yeah. Fuck your sources. Yes. And fuck your book. It's good blurb. End quote. Is is that true? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) How is it that this isn't on the front of your book on the on the
2: dust jacket? Good point
1: well he also began it and this i didn't put it in the book it just didn't necessarily flow with the top of the chapter with uh eat a dick ethan was the initial (laughs) eat a dick ethan eat a dick ethan but i don't hate you
0: that's wait he said eat a dick but
1: i don't hate you well okay because the context because the context is i reached out and i said look you know i know you probably hate me but i've got to do due diligence and i've got to reach out to you to get your side of it if you want to you know, if you want to present your side. And he said, uh, eat a dick, Ethan.
0: I don't hate you, though. And then I can actually help with that. He does hate you. He just doesn't want to give you anything. He doesn't. (laughs) He doesn't want to admit you were right about that. I bet you probably hate me. No, I don't hate you. I don't hate you. There are well, contexts in which you say well, you hate him. people and you don't mean it in a nasty way. This isn't one of those. Uh, not, yeah. not one of Why those. does Kevin Durant hate you
1: so much? I don't think he hates me necessarily because he doesn't know me. It's all based on what I'm writing about him. It's not like he's here watching me ignore my two-year-old and judging me for it. I mean, he could. You could say that's that's, us. that's not cool. Bad father, you know, he could make such a judgment, but that's not what the focus is. Um I, look, you don't know completely why somebody doesn't like the cut of your jib, but at least what caused him to blow up at me in a press conference is I wrote an article uh, where I said nobody I was talking to from the Warriors thought that he was coming back. You know that that at the very the, the, the most anybody could say in terms of optimism is that he's an unpredictable guy, and who knows? But the majority of people, decision makers in the Warriors, thought he wasn't coming back. Um, And it happened concurrent with the Knicks making this grand opening up of cap space by dealing Chris Tapp's Porzingis. At that time, people thought it was going to be the Knicks. Um, It turned out it was going to be the Nets. But even around that time, he was moving his production company to New York. Uh, The tea leaves were out there. Uh, Can tea leaves be out there? (laughs) I don't know how tea leaves work. Anyway. Totally. um, So he got mad at me in a press conference. He called me out by name. He... um, Went off on me, and really, I think he—he, he, I, I became almost more empathetic to the plight of the superstar because I'm not a famous person. But that week, I was in the news. I was in the sports news. When I turned on the TV, they're all yelling at each other about me and whether I'm good at my job or not. you feel your emotions rising and falling with the critiques of these strangers on your television. And I'm, I'm watching Dan Patrick. Dan Patrick said something good about me, and I'm going like, Yeah, I love Dan Patrick. Yeah, Dan Patrick. <laughs> He's so classy, so classy. He's better than Olbermann between the duo. He's great. He's, and he did second act in his career. And then I look on the, I see Tracy McGrady says, I don't know anything and I don't know what I'm talking about. I was like, oh, yeah, that's why, that's why you're not a winner, Tracy McGrady. That right there, <laughs> that right there. That, right there, that right, And you just, and you realize that this is not emotionally healthy, that people might think that they can withstand it and deal with it, but not really. And there's no running from it because yeah. Okay. Turn off Twitter. Great. Except If you have a phone and you want to be able to call your wife and do functional things, you're going to have a bunch of people you know from your entire life, every second cousin texting you that Dan Patrick said this or Tracy McGrady said that. There's no escape from you just because of how the technology is. And I thought to myself, man, no wonder so many superstars are insane. This is a hell of a thing to put your brain through. This technology that we use... It's moderately, moderately feasible for normal people to use it and to live in this strange display universe where you show yourself having a great time on Instagram, even if you don't uh, have such a great time. Um, but when you scale it up for a legitimately famous person, I think it's debilitating. And I know nobody's going to feel sorry for them because they make hundreds of billions of dollars. But at the end of that week, when it finally dissipated and went away and I got my life back, I did feel quite sorry for him and for other people of that caliber.
0: With respect to the Warriors dynasty, one person in particular stands out to me, and it's uh, it's Draymond. And this is the most sports question of all of the questions or pits of conversation we'll have today, I'm sure. But not so much his role in kevin durant exiting cuz i i don't think it was so fundamental to why kevin exited but draymond as this bizarre figure who is obviously not a terrible basketball player cuz he's in the national basketball association but he also strikes me as someone who should almost certainly have never received the max deal like he's not, <laughs> like in what universe does he get that outside of being lucky enough to be on this particular team with these particular stars. Like, they did win a title before Kevin got there, but, you know, Draymond is a glue guy. He's important to that team, but is he, like, max guy indispensable? There's something about it that has always struck me as a bit weird, and this particular season, having to do so much without Steph and doing it all so profoundly unsuccessfully, like if you switch that up and you lose Draymond and not Steph, I can't imagine that things would have gone nearly so bad. Like he's not, he's not that great. Tell me I'm wrong. Fight me. At the risk of turning this podcast into like WFAN, where
1: we're talking about players and whether they deserve their contracts, I would love to know if there's any non-basketball fan who would stick (laughs) with us for this particular journey. Draymond's not living up to the current contract. He had a dramatic fall off this last season and people do have their concerns about whether the wheels are falling off. Now, not that good. I, th- I think that's a function of people not actually believing that defense is half the game. It's objectively half the game. Defense is objectively half the game, but we don't treat it that way. We treat it like it's one-tenth of the game. Draymond Green is one of the greatest defensive wow. players of all time he was un- he was underpaid on the last contract he has pioneered a way of doing defense this 1 through 5 switching for those who don't know it's just uh, when somebody screens you you trade assignments and so versatility is really good to have and it's what built the warriors defense that all hinges on, on draymond i mean that's 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 what he did that's what he does now guys who expend that level of energy I mean, they, they, they kind of age, like running back some of the time. So I think we're almost talking about two different things, whether he's good now. I think you could be very much right about that good through his arc. I mean, it might've been a quick arc, but in the way that Dennis Robin was probably far more valuable to those Pistons teams. I mean, now he's getting the love and people are acknowledging it uh, that, that people might assume. I would say the same thing for Draymond, because
2: again, defense objectively half the game i'm glad you made the rodman comp because in watching him and i'm a much more casual basketball fan than i used to be um but i have a similar impression draymond during the championships uh years uh that i did with robin which is that yes he focuses on defense and he has his his roles but he plays with an overall court intelligence like dennis Rodman was a great Mm -hmm. passer like he was a great passer. I mean, if you see if you see uh, even the little uh, links in or the little clips in the uh, the last dance, uh, whenever he touches the ball, um, when he's not just like uh, just being an, an absolutely savage Lester Hayes stick'em rebounder, rebounder, yeah. um, he's a great touch passer. Does a bunch of stuff like that. Draymond Green is like that. He could sort of like yeah. do everything on a court.
1: Draymond is one of the best screeners hmm. in basketball, which is, again, another thing that I don't think any casual fan is fans like to watch the ball, you know, it's in any sport, right? They're not, they're not really looking in to what the offensive line is doing. I mean, some of that's the camera angle. I don't want to insult fans. You're all beautiful, intelligent. You all know what's going on out there, especially the ones listening to this. But I mean, a lot of thought goes into setting a screen. Draymond runs at these guys like a linebacker, halts to a stop to not get the foul. And it's about predicting where they're going to go and where they're going to try to go based on how they're playing their guy on offense and he predicts the angle again and again hmm. and again you know that's a real talent it's not captured in the statistics beyond plus minus and draymond you know he's had one of the greatest plus minus seasons ever and you could attribute that to the collinearity of him playing with the great players he was playing with but i would argue again underrated underrated mm-hmm. but right now he might have hit Hit a wall and he might be uh, validating what your general assessment of his game is.
0: I was picking a fight. I, I genuinely wanted your insights on that. So final uh, thing about Rodman, who I love uh, in
2: many ways, uh, is he first came to the league. He was actually kind of a scorer. Yeah. Uh, and one of the, the interesting uh, moments uh, and actually revelatory moments in The Last Dance is him saying, I realized that my role in this league, I can do this one thing. I'm going to study how to do this one thing, which is get rebounds, which he's yeah. was amazing at, like the best rebounder of the last quarter century, I think, without question in the in the association. Uh, but he, but like studied it, but he, he actually kind of scored pretty well in his first couple of years and just dropped it as a as a concept. Well,
1: and what they both have, they both they both like the nightlife. There's both this wonderment. I was covering playoff series and I would hear that Draymond was at Harrah's last night till 3 a.m. When we're in new Orleans. And then he goes out and he kicks Anthony Davis's ass in the fourth quarter. Um, (laughs) I, oh man, I remember, I remember asking him about it and, uh, Anthony Davis and, and he just basically bellowed and beat his chest. It was like, cause I'm all heart motherfucker. And he's just a (laughs) madman. And you just wonder, as people go, how do they do that? How do they sustain that? How do they sustain the energy um, when they're out like that? And them being out like that is part and parcel, indivisible from the energy you're seeing. There's just a demon inside those guys. For whatever reason, you see it represented more on defense. You see less of the guys on defense who are great like that. They often don't have a, the same touch on offense. And I think it's because there's just, there's just energy there. <laughs> they can't contain it. They can't harness it. They're looking to take the edge off, off the court. So there's a parallel right there between those two guys.
2: I'd love to talk about uh, – sorry, Camille, if you have a uh, transition, take it. You can, you
0: can take it where you want. I was going to ask about the uh, NBA reopening. I was going to ask about the NBA reopening. (laughs) Well, look at that coincidence. Yeah. Yesterday, I I read an an article that got me very excited. Um, It was about a conference call that took place between uh, the owners um, and solar, and it seemed like there might be a possibility that we would actually see the season resume, It's not entirely clear what that might look like, but there was an extensive conversation uh, about testing and just what options might be available. It sounded like there was even some talk about some rather extreme measures being taken with respect to creating some sort of campus for players and coaches to exist on so that they could be isolated from the COVID um, and potentially finish the damn season so LeBron can win his title uh, with the Lakers. Thank you. So uh, there are two options, it would
1: seem um, I'm rooting for one that I don't think is going to win out, which is uh, Las Vegas, uh, because that's closer and Maybe Warren Legarry, who runs the NBA Summer League, sort of their mm. exhibition league where the rookies get their feet wet. And uh, he runs that. and He's just a crazy character who is actually an agent who represents a third of the coaches and a mm. bunch of GMs and other people in basketball. Basically, he runs teams. He's the most powerful guy fans have never heard of. And he's like a, kind of a boomer hippie who lives in Haight-Ashbury and just runs vast quantities of the league out of his uh, Victorian Uh, but I don't think that's going to happen. Uh, it seems like Walt Disney world is the option that's really gaining a lot of traction because people aren't going to Walt Disney world. So you've got this vast, uh, territory. And, um, before it seemed maybe the players weren't so keen on this, but they're about to start missing checks in short (laughs) order and beyond missing (laughs) checks. And you know, the players, you're
0: bored. What are you doing? Yeah, you're
1: sitting at home. Well, and you know, this is a weird thing because the NBA had a flood of money that came in because they signed their TV deal at the height of the TV rights bubble. So they were getting over two billion a year from the broadcast partners, and mm. things got out of whack. Franchises got overvalued. Guys, you never heard of were making hundreds of millions of dollars. And so for a while, I'm looking at this and I'm wondering, man, it's, you know, maybe the players, maybe the players actually. Um, for the first time, have the uh, edge on the owners, because the owners have all these liabilities. Carnival is run by Mickey Arison, who owns Jeez. the Heat. Uh, that business a little bit precarious right now. Chilman Fritita, who owns the Rockets, uh, it's all restaurants, casinos, and hotels. Uh, he's out uh, taking loans at 13% interest. I'm wondering, he might be more desperate than the players. Uh, so. But then it's shifted back the other way. It seems like the players have finally gotten bored. And the thing that scared them is that if it all halts, if there is no season, they're going to have to crack open the collective bargaining agreement and renegotiate the whole damn thing on oh, it's, perhaps it's not, so favor-
0: happen. <laughs> not so
1: favorable terms. So yeah. by playing and risking their health, the NBA players are perhaps forestalling that. Um, and not having the whole damn thing renegotiated. And hey, athletes are optimists, man. That's what I've learned being around athletes. They're optimists. They don't think anything's going to happen to them uh, if the right precautions are are made. Uh, if if they if they aren't, the NBA could I don't know line the perimeter of uh, Walt Disney Road with alligators or whatever. Uh, I, I don't know. I'm not sure. But um, they, uh, I, I think that there's a will at least. There's a will, and where there's a will, mm-hmm. there's a way. Uh, the NBA has dragged its feet for a while, but there's,
0: there's a lot of, there's a lot of impetus to get this done and take on the risk. Just to put a button on it, I asked the question because I think the story itself is indicative of what so many companies and industries are going through trying to figure out a way yeah. for there to actually be life after this pandemic and not even after this pandemic in the midst of this pandemic. They're realizing to quote, uh, Rick Petino,
1: uh, there's no vaccine coming. Uh, Jonas Salk ain't walking through that door is what they're realizing. <laughs> they're uh, they're just going to have to take risks. That's how it's going to be.
2: But they're also realizing with with each passing day, especially in their industry, even more than ours, the number of people under the age of 35 or 40, which means all professional athletes for the most part. Um, who get this? Let alone get sick with it. It's vanishingly small. Yeah, it's they've super got a small. problem though yeah. that I don't think baseball has. So I look at this; it
1: seems feasible. Yes, it seems feasible that they could pull this off at Walt Disney World, and it could work. But as far as the resumption of basketball as we've known it, that looks harder to do than with baseball. Which, I mean, I've covered some baseball games as media. It, I was luxuriating and the vast expanse of space and being outdoors and the clubhouse is Mm -hmm. gigantic. And even the dugouts outside, everything's outside, which is why maybe when they did that study um, and tested everybody in baseball, maybe that's why the scientist was surprised at how few people had the COVID antibodies. Now with basketball, I mean, basketball players, it's like a super spreader event um, the way it traditionally goes where I mean, they are the, the focus of the teams is to do everything for them. So all they have to focus on is basketball. So that means people are constantly coming into contact with them. Here are your socks. Here's this. Here's that. Here's the massage. Um, they all eat out of, a, out of a big buffet tray after the games. Um, and they all are meeting with tons of people. Uh, it's all very compact. Uh, there's a coach's locker room. Yeah. Indoors, Uh, indoors. Yeah. On the road, the road locker room. Yeah. All indoors. The road locker room is always shitty. You know, sometimes the home locker room is spacious, but you stick the road team with the bad locker room. And not only that, (laughs) for the coaches who are older, there's a little coaches' locker room that's adjacent to the locker room. And these were all built before the coaching staffs exploded and expanded uh, like the administrative function of universities and so you've got a clown car situation but with these old men bumping up against each other um, and it is I mean it, it was not surprising to me that the NBA was the first sport to have guys come down with the coronavirus so yeah in the short term I think the season can be salvaged uh, in the long term that's going to be a very difficult putt to make
0: yeah i I've- I've very much come around to the perspective that th- this is unlikely to be over in two years uh, in any sort of meaningful sense. Maybe we have some sort of breakthrough and we find our way to a-, a treatment and it becomes widely available in something like 12 months. But this is this is likely to be a thing for the foreseeable future. And to the extent there are sort of islands that have managed to contain things for a while it's it, the only way to continue to have those things be contained is to turn yourself into a vault and not yeah. allow anyone else to come in this is this is life and as such the the resumption of life and the the uncomfortable difficult dangerous but necessary inevitable process of trying to figure out how to live life under these constraints I mean, yeah. we, we simply have to. We don't have a choice. The the lockdowns, just like the, the league stopping play, they inevitably have to end. There's a point at which people are overwhelmed by their circumstances and their necessities and the food shortages that we're starting to see um, to, to slightly, not so much transition, but to, to broaden the conversation. Today, I was reading a piece about the incredible food shortages that are starting to materialize internationally. Um, And many of those food shortages aren't merely, oh, people aren't out working anymore. It was, in many cases, the protectionist measures Mm. that various countries were taking, buying up foodstuffs or prohibiting the sale of other sorts of foodstuffs and the exportation of foodstuffs that they thought they might need, which, of course, has screwed up prices. But it also means that there are these surpluses Of stuff that are rotting in many instances and not being eaten. So we have a massive screwed up system where prices are starting to go up, where there's plenty of food and materials in many cases that is rotting or is in the wrong place. um, And simultaneously, we're trying to tell people not to work. It's hard and complicated and Disastrous, And I do wish we had a good basketball game to distract us. So. I mean, that's the whole last dance thing,
2: right? Like yeah. it is absolutely yeah. escapist entertainment. I've been happy to see on our local uh, uh, Mets station here in New York that they've been playing the 1986 uh, National League Championship Series, which, like all uh, playoff series in 1986, was incredible like even to the extent that you've forgotten about it i'm an angels fan so talking about 1986 is is grievous and we will stop very soon but like uh it's a phenomenally interesting thing it's great to watch and i'm i like time my washing the dishes at night so that i can see you know mike scott versus (laughs) dwight gooden all over again it's it's that great but that's (laughs) that's part of last dance right um camille uh, uh to your point a little bit like um, Our comrade, uh, Anthony Fisher, tweeted out uh, uh, a Wired story that came out today Um, that was basically uh, making the argument that, look, dude, kids aren't getting it. Kids aren't spreading it. They're a- absolutely not even spreading it to their own families. Um, Open the damn schools, right, which they're starting to do in Europe. They're not even really contemplating yet in America. And. They
0: should. <laughs> um, it's it's actually it's actually been at the end of the list of things that they plan to do well, in New York for some time. They didn't. They didn't. So really I really ta- suspect they'll be changing that. They didn't really
2: talk about it too much in the article itself. But like, part of the reason is that New York lagged everybody in closing the schools, and <laughs> then got the biggest caseload. Like it, it's New York. It's a New York epidemic. It has been in America. So that's also part of the, the perception of these things. But anyways, like. Um, it's clear to me at this point that being in the outdoors, being a baseball being a left fielder right now, you're just not really all that at that much risk, maybe in the clubhouse, watch the air conditioning, but like go outside people like California has been telling people you know you can you can go on a beach, but you have to be you can't sit down uh and you have to wear a mask and be six feet away from people like that's not Listeners to this podcast will know that I, uh, among our group, have been the most uh, um, worried about this, and the most thinking, thinking that you know the horrible things are going to happen in the future. But that's just insane. Like this stuff is not being spread in the open air, in the sunlight, between people who might be passing by one another you know, uh, transiently. So we have to start thinking, Dave Grohl had a great piece, the drummer of Nirvana and the singer of Foo Fighters had a great piece in the Atlantic um, that didn't really talk about policy. He was just like, we're going to do music again because we have to, at some point mm-hmm. you're going to be in a place, the 80,000 people or whatever, whatever your number is. And just cause that's, we do this. So um, yeah. yeah, Camille, we're going to be fucked for two years until we get a vaccine for sure. Um, or, but or, for or longer, <laughs> but professional sports will open in the meantime, because mm-hmm. we can't not have it. We can't. We just can't not have it like the NBA will happen Uh, In empty arenas in Las Vegas and they will figure out an air conditioning system for the shitty coach (laughs) locker room and the ghost of Jerry Tarkanian will come in and like uh, sneeze on everybody, but they're going to figure that out because like those dudes need to do something right like I'm I'm Giannis. You're telling me I can't play? Fuck you! I'm Giannis. I can play right now. I can dunk on a on a set of. I can actually dribble twice and dunk across the court right now. So you tell me you can't play? Fuck you! No, I'm going to play. So yeah. we're going to figure it out. I, I have. To I think. should
1: hope so. I should hope so. I don't think outdoor basketball is feasible. They tried that a few times in Phoenix, and uh, it just doesn't really work. So, hopefully, they can get, I mean, we're going to learn some things. We're going to learn some things. I know the NBL in Australia tried uh, a fanless finals, and they gave up halfway. And Andrew Mm -hmm. Logan, who was on one of the teams, was telling me that not having fans, it really hurts the TV presentation, that you wouldn't think.
0: Uh, why not Rucker Park? Why not Rucker Park, Ethan? That's, That's, a, pretty That's a pretty good idea. Basketball
2: could work. Idea. I mean, and also, <laughs> in, in the, and one guy
0: to show up. That's, a thing. That's a thing. Look at that. Oh, my God. No,
2: but like actually amazing. get some of the, the playground legends to that show up. That be fun. Right? Yes. Yes. There are some existing well, 23-year-old have- playground dudes who could come out and dunk on somebody. And they would gladly
0: risk their lives for the opportunity to play against these guys. I I have lots of good ideas. I don't understand if we're going to be rebroadcasting all of these old games. Why aren't we doing it Mystery Science Theater 3000 style? Like I want LeBron and Dwayne Wade and Carmelo Anthony talking about the game, throwing shit at the screen. Give me that. Like, show me that. On on opposite sides of the last dance. Oh yeah, this weekend, ESPN. Why aren't I calling the shots I mean, over that's there? A, I could navigate. It, it that, that's this a whole other thing, time. and I, 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 I hesitate to
1: even broach it because I used to work for ESPN, and there are a lot of talented people there. But yeah, a lot of the broadcast uh, ideas that have come out of there, uh, their presentation of games, it's perhaps left something to be desired versus the NBA and NBC with all the gravitas. Um, you know, ESPN, it seems like a lot of what happens revolves around uh, talk shows, because uh, as Ben Thompson at uh theorized, uh, you know, they don't make mm-hmm. money off selling the games as they pay so much for TV rights. They make money off these super cheap talk shows where they gab about the games. So that becomes the focus. Yeah. Um, but yeah, man, I'll point you uh, I'll point you head of NBA uh, programming. That's that's fine
2: for me. No skin off my nose.
0: <laughs> It's a great idea yeah i mean i, I g- could
2: save the lead i, I gotta think it. that camille that there's some uh tv rights bullshit associated with this right because i've thought this for a long time like you should not just have uh uh you know archived broadcasts but like even current ones you should have like a channel you know yeah. two of that well, broadcast the same and- game but instead of ha- having the usual people you have like <laughs> a stoner who's just going <laughs> And you have someone who knows nothing about the sport but just likes to see a man's ass in tights or whatever. You know, it is just like judging people on sartorial grounds, just yeah. like to be fun. Like yeah. who doesn't want to watch that? And like a stat nerd who's like, Well, actually Daryl Maury has yeah. plus minus ratio of his uh, players, the
0: vorp is off the charts. I think there's potential cats. to that. Yeah. It's yeah. got to be YouTube style too. You got to speed up the game. Like you can't. It, it's got to be well, mostly highlights, it, like mostly dunks and fast yeah. breaks. And it's tra- and It's got to be that. It's, it, it's trial and error,
1: just like fighting the viruses, right. where they, they tried doing a the players playing 2K against one another, and I don't think anybody really cared. Or I'm too old to know if people did care. But that that wasn't a big hit. They tried a
2: horse. <laughs> they tried a, a zoomed no, horse. You, people you didn't you really know, want, want that. Froze. Mystery
1: Science
0: Theater. That
2: idea has promise. Yeah. They want they that. They want that. They want that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. They want that. They want that. Damn. Maybe I should cut this out of the pocket. I shouldn't give this away for free. But but listen, honestly, that's my least good idea. And it's a great idea. I hope you're listening, NBA. <laughs> so, Ethan, I, I want to
2: uh, uh, pursue to your book. Were those Golden State Warriors the last dynasty, given the way that you talked about how you know, the Anthony Davises of the world, not just blow up their own contracts, and their own teams, and their own cities, but they mm-hmm. quit on the job. And I'm glad that he quit, went to the Lakers because so, you know, Lakers would be good again. But like um, it still kind of sucks and it uh, it makes everything sort of short term and And there's the constant reassemblages of big threes or big twos everywhere, as opposed to kind of programs that are built. The Warriors felt and have felt like a program, like a thing that happened. Um, Are they the last dynasty? I don't think they're the last dynasty, um, even if we are in an
1: era that feels as though the slot machine gets pulled after every season and there's a new combination. Uh, But what I will say is that. What we've learned with the NBA is that dynasties, they do tend to end prematurely, which seems to be almost uniquely NBA, that in football, it's usually injuries or just age that does you in. Um... Baseball, it can be money, but you know, it's just hard to sustain a dynasty in baseball. Basketball, it's often about egos and people getting sick of one another. And that's also what we're drawn to. That's the story that we're drawn to. That's what we're fascinated by, anchoring our interest in the last dance. Uh the breaks of the game that you mentioned. That's not about the Portland Trailblazers winning the title. It's about what happens afterwards. When we talk about Shaq and Kobe, we're not talking about oh man, they played so well together. We're talking about this Greek tragedy of their egos not being able to coexist and similar with the warriors. So I guess what I would say, mm. I think that we will have dynasties in the future, but I also predict that perhaps they will be they will be uh, shorter and they will end for the same reasons uh, that they tend to end. It's about
0: ego you have time to to give us a bit of a pitch for the book beyond the sort of Kevin Durant's departure story which i know you've had to talk about repeatedly in a lot of your media appearances there is obviously more to this story yeah my, pr- than my pitch for Kevin the book Durant is that drama. i want to give the
1: readers a behind the scenes look at the real nba which in many ways is a darwinian crucible it's presented as fun it's presented as Instagram, but no, these <laughs> guys got to the top of where they are by being killers, <laughs> and the egos royal behind the you know behind the scenes. And <clears> my dramatic pitch of this sounded it sounded properly intense until my two year old started making adorable noises in the background. <laughs> and completely messed me up. Adorable. <laughs> Compatitive. Compatitive. Exactly no, he's actually holding a basketball currently and, and trying to shoot on his. Yeah, little, he's, he's yeah. to shoot. His yeah. So it's it's about that. It's about behind the scenes. It's about yeah. some of the people you don't think. And it's about the current era and trying to be dependent on a superstar. <laughs> he's, killing he's, <laughs> he's killing my pitch this boy. He's killing my pitch. I guess I would say. Um, now that my brain has been completely scrambled while I was trying to uh, while I was trying to make the pitch of it, um, I think that there's something interesting to the circumstance of the NBA superstar at such a young age having so much power and not being happy and being immiserated by modern technology mm. in the way that people are now when you scale up when you scale up how much of it they're drinking in. Mm -hmm. And I love the absurdity of watching these ultra-competitive people in the organization have to grovel and try to figure out in this constantly shifting terrain based off the modern superstar and so it's a look at that in many ways i think it's a business book and in many ways it's a basketball book And in many ways it's a workplace drama and i hope that there's something for
2: everybody in it um the victory machine folks it's a quarantine <laughs> dream five-star <laughs> reviews on amazon please when you say the superstar For you, is that Steph or is that Kevin Durant or who are you talking about? I'm talking about all all of the above. Oh, no, he just slipped and fell.
1: Um, I'm talking in a very Kevin Durant against the Raptors way. It was very calamitous what just happened. I I think that Kevin Durant is more illustrative Mm -hmm. of the modern NBA superstar and all his own we than Steph Curry is. And he might be an extreme example, but you see varying degrees of it among the stars. Also, Kyrie Irving, who have that depressive, angsty streak to them, where getting to the top of this particular mountain uh, has not made them fulfilled. Mm. I think that's something that you're you're seeing broadly in the NBA. Mm.
2: There was a moment in the last dance, mm. actually, right at the the top. Uh, it was an interview of with with all people, uh, Mark Eaton, the. Uh, talentless seven, 7 foot 4 uh, eternal uh, shot blocker from the Utah Jazz and they're talking about Michael Jordan as he's entering the league um and he any he, marketing perfectly fine guy and I, talentless is way too strong um but uh he said at the time he 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 gave what was then the conventional wisdom which is that there are no small forward slash you know tall shooting guards yeah. the 2 the 3 who who uh, can win a championship. You can't build a team around that person. Um, was that the prevailing wisdom yeah. about Steph Curry? Uh As a six foot two, three, I don't know how tall he is, uh, guard in this league, you can't wrap. He's surely, you know, a a shoot first pointing guard. That's why Nike missed on him. He was signed with Nike and he,
1: Uh Nike ultimately didn't care about his services too much because companies, they go back to whatever made them successful. And the archetype for Nike was athletic wing, Michael Jordan. Mm -hmm. That's what built Nike. That's what we're looking for. That's what we're in the business of. We've got Mike, then we've got Kobe, then we've got LeBron. This is what we do. It's cute that you're this little guy who shoots threes, but that's not really what drives sales for us. Um, (laughs) And then sometimes you miss out on a paradigm shift when that's your focus. When you're going based on what always worked before, you miss out on the guy who's about to change everything. And that guy is the most valuable guy of all. So yeah, definitely in a business sense, that happened. (laughs)
0: Wow. Well, I don't know how the league will will sort of change and evolve from here, but it is certainly the case that my principal frustration with Steph has always been that he doesn't look like he should win that much. He doesn't look like he should be that dominant. LeBron looks like the alpha male that he is when he's playing basketball. Camille, this is a hell of a way to find out that you're a retired NBA player. <laughs> uh, I, I didn't know this. Look, I'm a fan. I'm a fan who is married to the the magic of Michael Jordan and wants to relive it over and over again, and I I want the dominant alpha male to to look representative of that, and I don't want him to look like Steph Curry, who on television I always look at him and like I could beat him in a fight. Could could not. Yeah. I could. Well, I well, that's dirty. exactly yeah.
1: the mentality that I think most players. If you talk to them and you say if you say to ask most players who's better Kevin Durant or Steph. They go with KD, and I think some of that is because size is respected in a way for the player that, to us, it's abstract, but when you're on the court and somebody's beating the shit out of you, um, it makes more of an impression. Yeah. And there's something to the idea of if <laughs> Steph Curry pulls a move on you and gets the shot off, the player tells himself, oh, okay, I won't, I won't fall for that That's next right. time. And he will, but you tell yourself that. You tell yourself yeah. that. If Kevin Durant does the turnaround and you can't block yeah, yeah. it, you go, okay, well, that's just impossible. And ultimately yeah, yeah. that is more respected yeah. and feared. I think in the end, um, than, and, it, well, and, 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 less resented. Yeah. us resent it. let so. that,
0: that reminds me of that, that great moment. And maybe we, we end here where uh, Charles Barkley, um, is recounting his experience <laughs> playing against MJ in the finals. And Charles, um, says, uh, there's no shame in losing to Mike, it's like properly deferential and acknowledging precisely that this larger than life figure in, in a sense, like, even though you didn't win at all, you're forever a part of his amazing legacy. Um, so this will certainly drop before the last two episodes of this phenomenal documentary series, uh, will air. So I I hope you will indulge if you haven't indulged um, and this will be one of those rare things that I'll actually go back and uh, partake of again um, after having watched it. It's It's been that good. Um, Ethan, you got any any parting thoughts for us on your way out the door apart from buy my book?
1: Uh, buy my book, buy my book, <laughs> <laughs> the Vichy machine. It's a quarantine dream. For some reason, they tell me that you should leave me five-star reviews on Amazon. For some reason, that helps algorithmically. Yeah. I, I just want to say thank you so much for having me. I, I love what you guys do. Uh, we will table the discussion that we were perhaps going to have on whether it's better to be a journal uh, or a sports writer. God, yes. Which is a more loath- Which is a more loathsome existence? Which is a happier existence? We'll have to discuss all that at a future date and time. Yeah. But thanks so much for well, the time. Well,
0: I'm not. I'm not a journal. I'm promiscuous. I do awesome, a lot man. of things. Um, Ethan, you've been phenomenal. You are not merely a sports writer. You are a man of exceptional range and talents and very, very uh, bright. So you'll be back for show. Thank you for gracing us with your presence here today. Thanks, guys.
1: We, we, we know of new methods of attack. The Trojan